Well, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. Now, we have been looking at a series on Wednesday nights uh, entitled Walking with Dinosaurs. There are four parts to that. We just completed the second one. Today, or, or last week, we looked at the consequence or the end result of believing that the earth is old. And it, it, could you just bring me down a little bit here? And, and what we concluded is that the implications of old earth creationism says this. Since we find cancer and disease and destruction and immeasurable suffering in the geologic column that we are told is supposedly hundreds of millions of years before man appeared and therefore man sinned, then therefore, because of that, all of these things preceded the fall, and therefore God created cancer. And you remember what he said, on every single day, it is good, and on the last day after he created man, he said, it is very good. And we are then led to the implication that all of these things, such as cancer, are in God's eyes very good, and he created it. And we realize that that is not an implication that Scripture teaches. All of those things that I just mentioned to you are a result of the fall. We live in a broken, cursed world, and it is our fault. And so those are the implications. That's the, the finish line. That's where all of this heads to, that we have to say no, that is contrary to God's word. Now, instead of looking at the end result today, we're going to, looking at, we're going to be looking at the starting point. And where you start is, is very important. There's a story told, uh, so I've heard anyway, about these two farmers, that ranchers really, they owned horses, they had stables, and each of them were going to use their best horse to compete in a county steeplechase. One farmer was absolutely, rancher, excuse me, was absolutely certain that he was going to win, so he hired the best jockey that he could get, and off the horses went in this race. And the two horses were vying for the lead, and they were coming over the last, uh, what do you call that, Mount Steeple, whatever they have to jump over, and both of them fell into the mud, the dirt, the, the water, and the, 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 the jockey wiped the mud from his, his goggles, climbed aboard the horse, and took off, and he crossed the finish line, expecting cheers and cheers, and all he heard was laughter. And, and he, he was a professional jockey racer, whatever guy, and, and, and so this was humiliating. He finally pulled his horse over, and he challenged the man who was laughing at him. He says, why are you laughing? And the guy, Because I won the race, and the guy looked at him and said, yeah but you won it with the wrong horse. He apparently mounted the wrong horse, and so he thought he had won. So from that point on, because he mounted the wrong horse, he actually lost the race. How many of you have ever heard of any kind of story of a marathon race to discover that the winner very slightly entered the race towards the end? So he was fresh, and he darted past the leaders, and he supposedly won the race. Church, it all depends on where you start the race. Because where you start determines how you will finish, or what, choose, what horse you choose to ride. Let me give you an example here. 
if we start in the wrong place, my point then this morning is you will end up in the wrong place. If you start in the wrong place, you will end up in the wrong place. I, I don't know if you're aware of this truth, but much of our ancient dating of civilizations uh, gets tied back to Egyptian chronology. And we are told by Egyptologists that Egyptian chronology is so certain that if there's anything that happens outside of Egypt and it's connected by some war or some other event, you can therefore date with incredible certainty when that event happened. But here is the implications. When you ask these Egyptologists, is there any evidence for the Exodus? Now, the Exodus should have happened around 1446 BC. Because the Egyptologists are starting in the wrong place, they will tell you there's absolutely no evidence for the Exodus. The vast majority of, of archaeologists studying Egypt will tell you there's no evidence for the Exodus. Even Jewish scholars will tell you, yeah, well, there's no evidence for the Exodus. And there should be plenty of evidence. So here's what people like David Downs and, and many others, I recommend a, a film to you. It's two hours long. It's entitled Patterns, Patterns of Evidence, or New Patterns of Evidence, excuse me. And here's what they are understanding. Here is what they are discovering. They are present-day Egyptologists. When they're wondering, did the Exodus happen? Is there any evidence? They're starting in the city of Ramses, which is actually mentioned in Exodus chapter 1. The Jews, or Hebrews, built this city as a storehouse for food. Then we should find something there. But the problem is they're starting in the wrong place. And so what they do is they go, these, new, these uh, David Downs and, and many Christian archaeologists, they're digging in a different part of the city, deeper into a city that is called Avaris. And in Avaris, they are discovering a plethora of evidence that just blows your mind, that, is, that substantiates the truths of the book of Exodus, the Exodus itself. The Egyptians stay as slaves. They found towns in, in, in which... It was the, 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 the houses were emptied quickly. All of their valuables or, or, or many of their valuables, their tools, stuff that, you know, if they're leaving quickly, they probably wouldn't need to bring with them. Left behind as if they left quickly. Much evidence um, that we, we could get into. And, and the reason why today they are saying, Egyptologists, that there's no evidence is because they're starting in the wrong place. They need to start in a verse. They need to start in the right place. This principle, though, has far-reaching implications. It truly does. For old earth creationism, they start in the wrong place. Now, I'm going to spend some time, and we're going to be looking at what Jesus and the New Testament authors have to say about the age of the earth. Now, I'm doing this because this Wednesday nights, that is what we're talking about. We're not talking about evolution. We're talking about the age of the earth. But we're going to see there is a principle at play here that at the end, every single one of us are going to realize, wow, this question of where you start applies in every area of my life. That's how significant this is. And if I start in the wrong place, I'm going to talk about some of those wrong places we can start at, 
we will end up with the wrong conclusions. And many, even Christians in our day, are ending up with wrong, collusion, wrong conclusions and they're leave, living defeated Christian lives as a result. Old Earth creationism kind of tag teams what I'm going to call secular science and they adopt a, an assumption or a presupposition that's this. It is called uniformitarianism. Now say that ten times fast. Uniformitarianism basically says this that the past processes are the key to understanding, or excuse me, the present processes are the key to understanding the past. Let me give you an example, the Colorado River. So they measure how fast the Colorado River is, how big it is, et cetera, et cetera. The Colorado River, you may remember, is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Their assumption is that this river carved out this canyon. It is about one no, 18 miles across at, at one point and one mile deep. That's a lot of erosion, if you ask me. Now, <laughs> they assume various things, and consequently they say, in order for this little Colorado River to have carved this huge canyon, it would take millions upon millions of years. And that's one of their evidences for the, for the Earth being more than just 6,000 years. However... They do this based on a wrong assumption, that the river was like this the entire time. Now, here's what they're finding, and I'm going to be short with this, and that is that they have found two empty lakes miles away, large lakes, and there's ways to test this, and apparently the, the, the northernmost uh, boundary of one lake, the bank, uh, through the melting of ice, etc., got broken down, began to flood, that water formed the Snake Canyon because there was so much rushing water coming out of this lake. It then crested the side of the southernmost lake, and it broke open, and together there was so much water rushing across the land in a local flood that it quickly carved out the Grand Canyon. This is what they are now coming to understand. The problem was their starting point. They started with certain assumptions, present processes, how big the river is, how much it's flowing, how much sediment it's moving, and they extrapolate that back into the past and say, yeah, this uh, Grand Canyon's about, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing here, 150 million years old. I don't know exactly the date they put on it, 250 million. But see, they're wrong because, number one, my starting point is the Bible. And the Bible tells me that's not how old the earth is. And so there's this assumption but there is another assumption that is even deeper because uniformitarianism is based on naturalism. Now follow me here for a moment. Uniformitarianism, that is uniform. Myself, I hold to what's called catastrophism. That means catastrophes. God uses catastrophes like the flood to do many things that we see today. Consequently, if you exclude those, you exclude miracles. Now, I'm not saying that old earth creationists exclude miracles, but the secular science does, because science can't measure miracles. They're outside of their ability to test, and therefore, for secular science, miracles cannot happen. 
All this goes back all the way to David Hume, and we assume in science that miracles can't happen. So if miracles can't happen, then what you see is, is that we, we'll use what we see. We, we can use the processes today, extrapolate to the back. We can find out how old the earth is. We can find out a lot of things. But that's assuming that there are no catastrophes, that there's no floods. And of course, there are many floods that have occurred, so they say. There's many, been many local floods. There's been many volcanic eruptions, such as the eruption of Mount St. Helens and all the devastation that it left. And so they have started in this wrong place of naturalism, but here's the problem now. Old Earth creationism has piggybacked on this assumption. Though they would not deny that there are miracles, maybe we should call them semi-naturalists, but they downplay it. And that they assume that creation the fall and the flood played little significance and for some of them no significance in the world that we observe today. Let me just use an example here and maybe you can grasp this and then we're going to quickly move on to what the New Testament has to say. Many of you are probably familiar with this concept of radiometric dating. And all that means is you take this really old rock, or so they say, and you test, you apply certain tests. And one of the tests is the decay rate, the radioactive decay rate of uranium. Not, a, not an element you want to get too close to. It's radioactive. That means it's unstable. And so it's going to kick off what they call alpha and beta particles on what they would say on a timely basis. And so it's decaying, and there's about 14 stages that uranium goes through, and when it's finally kicked out that last alpha particle, it arrives at a stable element that we call lead. So there's number, numerous assumptions that go into this, but here is one that is very significant. It assumes that there have been no catastrophes that have affected this because radiometric dating is very susceptible to water. Hmm, so if the, water, if the earth got flooded at one time, and it's very susceptible to heat. Actually, if that rock reaches a certain temperature, this clock that they are using, this radioactive decay is like a clock. It gets, it gets taken all the way back to zero. You, it starts all over. Now, whether you understand that or not, but, Understand this, when they test a rock, they will say, mm, that one is 1.1 billion years old. Now, there's certain assumptions there, as they say. But here's one of the indications that there's something wrong with this dating process. There is so much of, of those who say the Earth is old that is based on this one principle of radiometric dating. Here is an example. If you were to go to the Grand Canyon, and we lived only four hours south of the Grand Canyon for about three years, we had several people visit us, uh, and every time someone visited us, guess where we would have to take them? Okay, I mean, we didn't mind. Grand Canyon is beautiful. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Now, that's seen it on a picture, and you've actually been to the Grand Canyon. It is amazing. It is gorgeous. There's different colors in the layers. It's huge. You just step back and say, wow, this is amazing. It's incredible. Well, if you were to look closely, you would notice that there is a lava flow. Remember, intense heat causes that geologic clock to go back to zero. 
you should be able to test that lava flow and see how old it is. Here's a problem, though. When you go way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you find another lava flow. So brilliant scientists said, well, let's test both of them. The one at the top should be older or younger, church, according to old earth creationism. It should be younger, all right? But here's what they find. The dates that they have for that lava flow demonstrate it's older than the lava flow at the bottom. Here is the reason we are told. Here's what, no lie. They say, it's just that you can't date young rocks. It just doesn't work. And so when you have a young rock here and you're testing it, and I don't care what, there's, there's numerous radiometric things. It's not just uranium to uh, lead, but there's strontium and other radioactive materials, and you can test. No matter what test you apply to a young rock, it's going to throw your results off. Think about that for a moment. But what if all the rocks are young? Hello? If they're all young, then all of your tests are going to be completely skewed. They will mean nothing. Now, in addition to that, just bear with me for a moment. When God created the world, when he created Adam, was Adam a little baby, like one day old, saying, wah, 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 feed me, feed me? If he could even talk at that, just cry, 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 and wow, that would have been tough for God, right? No, he created him, I don't know, 25, 30 years of age, so he was of the age of sexual reproduction. Because when he was created, that very day, he said, go and increase in number. And if that little kid was only a day old, he was like, what? So obviously, God created Adam and Eve with an appearance of maturity to them. Well, if you've ever noticed in Genesis 1, it says God said, God caused the land to produce vegetation. Now, he's not implying like evolution, like millions of years here. It's just that if you were to have seen a film when, it's, when, a, when a film is showing like a, a, a plant growing and then you put it on really fast forward, there, there's a term for that, then you see the plant grow really fast. What if God did that? What if God created all of vegetation and he caused it just within hours, vegetation to grow at, at, at a tremendous rate? What if God were to do it that way? And, and in fact, the scriptures even leans and its implication in that direction. So now, Adam, the day after he is made, or excuse me, that would be the Sabbath, so I would say no the following day when he's not resting, and, and then he goes and he says, well, I've got to get firewood, blah, 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 and, and so he chops down this tree, and, it's, and it's, it's this huge oak tree that God has created. When he chops it down, is he going to find one tree ring or a hundred tree rings because it has the appearance of a hundred years. It would be very simple for him to find a hundred tree rings, but the, how old is the tree? It's only, let's see, day three, so four, five, six, seven, eight, it's five days old. It's not even a year, and it's not a hundred years old, but it has the appearance of that. Now here's where I'm going. Let's say when God created the earth that because you know, and I know, that the earth's core is molten. What if it were God created this rock and he turned the core of it so that it rotated and generated tremendous heat? 
Do you know what is one of the major contributions to the heat in the core of our, our Earth? It's radioactive decay. Whoa. So if God created Adam with the appearance of age, and God created the tree so that it looked at all observation that it's 100 years old, and now God super generates the heat in the core of the Earth, and we all know that the core rotates and generates heat and electromagnetism, etc. But now, to do that, there is a tremendous amount of radioactive decay that's creating this heat. So if I'm going to look at a rock, and oh my goodness, it appears to be 1.2 billion years old, I am making an assumption that when God created that rock, he did it in a way other than what I just demonstrated, because what I just told you about would create tremendous radioactive decay. Now, if you followed that, all I am saying, here's my point. If you just kind of suddenly blanked out and like, yeah, wah, 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 great. Uh, here's what I'm saying. When you say the earth is old, you are starting at the wrong place. You have wrong assumptions. And there is only one place that we legitimately can start. And that is what the God that created all of this tells us happened. That is the only place that we can start. Now, we're going to see here in just a few minutes, after we go through a few verses, we're going to see that, honestly, many of us, even as Christians, we start at the wrong place. And it messes our lives up. So let's, I'm using this as now an example for how we can start at the wrong place and therefore end up in the wrong place. So turn with me now, if you've not already, Luke 11. I'm going to read three verses. There is the center verse, verse 50, that we're going to focus on. And actually, we're going to focus on a phrase there and try and get its understanding. Because did Jesus believe that the earth was old? Or did he believe in a recent creation of only, at least from his standpoint, 4,000 years? From our standpoint, about 6,000 years. Now, you can do the math. And you will arrive at creation being somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,175 years old. Now, we looked at the genealogical records. We concluded that there are no gaps in the genealogical records of Genesis 5 and 11. So we can't say that that's where age came from. And so we can follow the genealogical records in the years given to the Bible and arrive at a date such as 4,175. 4,175 B.C. Now... <clears throat> so from Jesus' standpoint, that would have been about 4,000 years ago. So what, is Luke's, what does Jesus tell us in Luke 11? Starting with verse 49, he says this, Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Verse 50, Therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of of the world. Now the phrase there literally translated is the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel, you remember Abel, Genesis 4, killed by Cain. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Try washing your hands from that one. Wow, that's a heavy accusation. So what does Jesus mean by the foundation of the world? From the foundation of the world, from that starting point to the present, 
the prophets, the blood of the prophets has been shed. But if the foundation of the earth were 4.54 billion years ago, and then about 4.5 billion years later, since man, they say, has been around for only about 10 to 100,000 years, so the number 60,000 comes up in literature quite a bit, so I'm going I'm to just choose that one, 60,000. So man has been around for 60,000 years. The earth was created 4.54 billion years ago, but it says from the foundations of the earth, the prophets have been killed. Wait, 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 no, Jesus, you meant from 4.54 billion years ago were the foundations of the earth, until, and then you know, excluding that time when man was created, I mean, there couldn't have been any blood of the prophets shed then because man wasn't around. So was the blood of the prophets really shed from the foundation of the, of the world? So here's, here's what older creationists will do. Say, wait, 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 back the truck up. This word creation, or, or this, world, uh, this word world is the Greek word cosmos, and it can mean the known world or civilization. So what they're saying, they say, we need to understand this right. We need to get rid of that word world, and it should say from the foundation of civilization. Well, here's something that we learn. Just because a word can mean one thing does not mean that it means that in a, this particular context. Let me give you an example. One of my daughters comes up to me and says, that guy was hitting on you. I am going to immediately want to know what she means by hitting on you. So I'm going to look for bruises because the word hit can mean apply physical force to with contact, or it can mean that he was trying to hit on her as in flirt with her. Can you go out with me? Can we hook up type of thing? So either way, I'm going to investigate very seriously what she has to say. But she simply meant, yeah, he was trying to hit on me. So dad, you know, I'm not really interested in this. Can you kind of be there with me? And I'm going to kind of hang on to you for the rest of the evening type of thing. No, uh, that doesn't happen, okay, in our church and such. So just be safe on that. But I'm going to want to know what do you mean by this word hit? I'm really going to want to know. Do I use physical force? Or do I just protect you? Because I'm going to want to know what to do right now. Just because the word hit can mean apply physical force does not mean that that's what she meant. Just because the word cosmos can mean civilization does not mean that it means this. As a matter of fact, here is what we discover. This word, foundations of the world, is actually used ten times in the New Testament. Ten times. I'm going to read just a few passages to you and how it's used. Four of them, actually. Four of the ten. Are you ready? John 17, 24. How is this phrase even used in the New Testament? Does it ever mean from the foundation or beginning of civilization? John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, does that mean that he means right at the beginning of civilization? Because hmm, maybe the father didn't love him after he created the world, but before, no, he doesn't mean beginning of civilization. He means truly before God created 
anything, anything. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in Christ, what, after he created the earth, but before he created civilization? No, before he created anything, before time began. And that's actually how some modern versions will translate a phrase like this, foundations of the world. Before time began, before God created anything, is what he means. 1 Peter 1.20. <clears throat> for he was foreknown, referring to Christ, he, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. Foreknown before the creation of civilization? No. Before God created anything, before before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens. Before all of that, Christ was chosen by the Father. I want you to go to this earth because I know that they're going to fall and they need a redeemer. And then Revelation 13-8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus died on the cross before God created the heavens and the earth. But in the mind of God and the set purpose of God and what we would call predestination, God determined my son will die. And that was so certain. It was, it was embedded in his set purpose so strongly that Peter tells us that he, was, he actually was crucified or died before God created anything. It was that certain. That certain. When we look at these passages, we realize the foundation of the world does not mean, and never in all ten uses of this phrase means the beginning or the, from the foundations of civilization. It always means before God created anything. Before God created anything. <coughs> Once you just imagine this with me for a moment, I'm going to use an illustration here. Let's imagine that the turn of the summer, what is that, June 21st or 22nd, when it turns summer, all the way to the very end of the year, that's six months, six months, about half a year. And I'm going to use this for illustrative reasons. The, the, that first day of summer is the starting point. That's when God created the universe. Now, according to older creationism, that would be approximately... 17 billion years ago. They, they keep playing around 14, maybe 16, maybe 20, about, about 17 billion years ago, so science says. <clears throat> if that would represent the first day of summer. Jesus' statement here would be made within two minutes of 2018. Dece December 31st, at 12 midnight is when God, using this illustration, that's when God created Adam and Eve. He created all the cosmos, all the universe. The first day of summer created man at midnight of 2017, the very last second of 2017. Two minutes later, Jesus is saying, 
that the blood of the prophets was shed from the beginning or the foundation of the world. Is he referring back to the summer? Is he referring just to for two minutes ago? Is he referring to that whole amount? And it starts getting very confusing. That is how much time elapsed with an old earth view between the beginning of summer to the end of the year. That much time man has been on the earth for only two minutes, less than two minutes using that scale. Did you follow what I'm saying there? I mean, the... So if older theology is correct, then Jesus is really saying that this generation will be guilty of the blood of the prophets from two minutes ago. That's because in this illustration, that's when God created man. This begins to break down into nonsense when we start looking at this. Now let's turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Mark 10, verse 6. We see another example of this. My point there with Luke 11 is that Jesus could not mean from the beginning of civilization. He must mean from the beginning of creation when all that God created began. And he started on day one and ended on day six. And that is the creation of everything. And that was 4,000 years ago. So the creation of man is so close to the creation of the world. Jesus just says, from the creation of the world. From when, and when you look around at creation, when all of this began, that's what he means by that phrase. And that's what he means in this phrase in Mark 10, verse 6. They're talking about divorce and remarriage and such. And Jesus is saying, well, God did not create man and he did not start man and woman off, husband and wife off with the intention of divorce, but rather till death do you part. And so in chapter 10, verse 6, he says this, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This verse only makes sense when you realize how close the creation of man and the creation of the earth are according to Scripture. But if you don't start with Scripture and you assume billions of years, actually 4.5 billion years between the creation of the earth and the creation of man, this falls apart. What does he mean by this? From the beginning of creation, he made the male and female. From the beginning, when all of this was first created, he created man, male and female. Let's look at another verse in Romans 1.20. We're only going to spend a few more minutes on these. I want to get into some of these implications or really where we can end up, or rather where we start. That's so significant, where we start. And in Romans 1.20, Jesus, excuse me, Paul, wow, Paul is talking about how man in his wickedness, he wants he wants to suppress the knowledge of God. He wants to somehow say, I am not accountable to anybody. And Paul is telling them, wait a second. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, no one will be able to say, well, I didn't know. And here's, how, here's why he says this. Because he says, no one will be without excuse. Follow me here. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature 
have been clearly seen. Clearly seen by who? The bacteria and the single cell, you know, a couple billion years ago, or by man, who is apparently created 4.5 billion years after he created the earth. What is he referring to? Who? He's, he's obviously referring to man because he says, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. The reason why we will be without excuse was from the day that, or from that creation week, from that time that God created the world because he created the world and man so closely together, not four and a half billion years apart, so closely together that man immediately within creation week has observed what God created and he steps back and says, there must be a God. Now, when we studied this passage, when we went through the book of Romans months ago, we also learned not only can we look at this creation that God has made and conclude there must be a God, but he's a loving God. He is also a just God because not only do I see beauty and creativity and wonder and I am awestruck by it all, but I also see something is wrong in this world. And God doesn't create, because he's infinite in power and love, he doesn't create things like cancer and disease. So how is this here? The Greek said, well, because the gods are both good and evil. Well, the Bible says God is purely good. So how did the evil get there? It's our fault. Something is not wrong with God. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with man. And we can actually conclude when I look at this world, I see how beautiful and good it is, but I see the evil in it. I say, wait a second. This God who is full of love and created this world for me, this world is broken. And I look in myself and I, I do things that are wrong and I hurt people. And I'm, I get angry with God and, and even deny his existence and something's wrong with me. And who can fix me? You know, Maybe the person is right at a brink of divorce. His wife wants to leave him. What a wake-up call. Something's wrong with me. And so I'm telling you this. We can look at creation and discover that there is a God of love. And this poor man here is broken and in need of being rescuing. And God has the answer. Since the creation of the world, man has been able to clearly see this. Not four and a half billion years after the creation of the world, but since the creation of the world. <clears throat> because of the time, I'm going to purposely leave out this last one, but I do want you to write it down, John 8, 44. Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. And they couldn't mean from the beginning of his creation because Satan was created good. And he led a rebellion against God, and we, that is his fall into sin, and he was judged as a result of it. So that passage couldn't mean from his beginning, from the beginning of what? From the beginning of creation. Before man's fall, probably shortly after man was created, Satan led this rebellion, and then he soon after tried to lead, lead man in that very same rebellion against God. You see, it only makes sense when we realize that the earth is recently created. It's young and not old. So where's all of this going? 
I would say that it is very fair, and there's other verses we could look at, we're not, but Jesus and the New Testament authors truly believed that the earth was young. That's their starting point. It's their starting point for one reason only, church, because the Bible tells them God was there in the beginning, and he is the only one who can tell me how it all happened and when it happened. Man can't. We're going to bring all of our assumptions into it. And see, this is our problem. It's that we, many times, even as Christians, we don't start with what God says. We start with what man says. We, we, we look around the world and we start asking questions and we start reading through the Bible and we come across this concept of hell. Well, I'm sorry, they say, hell doesn't make sense. If God is so loving, why would he ever send someone to hell? That's forever. And so what they do is they start with what they think is logic about what God should do, and they say, God, according to my logic, according to man's reasons, this is how you should behave. And hell needs to be scrapped from the Bible. Or we need to completely reinterpret our understanding of hell. And there have been people like you know, Rob Bell, and the, his goal has been to erase this concept of hell. That everyone's going to heaven. You don't need to believe in Jesus. You're going to get a second chance. And he is leading people to hell by telling them there is no hell. The only way that you are going to come to the conclusion that there is a hell is not by your logic. Because this concept of God's holiness that is truly beyond our understanding and from it comes this, I, this concept of hell. And I might even say that it comes also from, his, from who he is as the God of love, that he is love. And we, just, we don't understand love, church. That's the bottom line. We don't understand God's holiness. These are these infinite in all of these things. We don't get it, but yet we are so bold to look at the Bible and say, well, hell doesn't make sense. Let me just get my pen and start marking through that word. We have to start with the Bible. That is the only way that we are going to arrive at the truth. We have to start with the Bible in everything. How could Jesus rise from the dead? According to science, that's impossible. So let's get out our red little pen and mark through Jesus' resurrection every time we come through it. And by the time you're done, half of your New Testament is going to be marked out. The significance of Jesus' resurrection is paramount in the New Testament. We start with what the Bible says not with what science so-called says. Because science so-called is going to say, no, resurrections, that's impossible. Yes, it is for man, but not with God. Let me tell you, let me just move now into an area in which most of us are guilty. We go through not just a bad day, not just a bad week, but a bad year. It seems as if everything in our world is crumbling. Someone close to us dies. A relationship gets completely destroyed. We lose our job that we had been at for 10 years, and we have been working our way up, falsely accused, and were let go. What justice is there in that? And we take a step back and we say, you know what, God? According to my circumstances, 
it has seemed very clear to me that you do not love me. Where's my starting point? With that conclusion, where's my starting point? I must be right. My assumptions about my circumstances, they must be right. And you know what, God? I don't even feel loved. I feel like you are blessing others so much more than me. Look at this next-door neighbor of mine. He runs an absolutely illegitimate business, and he's got a new car like every month. What is up with that? Why don't you bless me like that, God? Oh, that's right, because apparently you don't love me. Where's our starting point? Our starting point are all of these assumptions that we have. It may not be logic, but it's my, I'm starting with my circumstance. And that circumstance tells me that God must not love me. Wait, 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 wait. Let's back the truck up a bit. Instead of starting with my circumstances, let me start with the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, actually, in Romans 5, it says in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God, Jesus himself, so infinite in love and holiness and perfect in every way, why would he die for you? Why would he do that? You are a sinner. You are in rebellion against God. Listen to this, verse 10. It says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we, have, shall we be saved through his life? So by his death, <coughs> excuse me, by his death, we are no longer his enemies, but we have now been forgiven of our sins and now we're in right relationship. We're not his enemies, we're his friends. Jesus even turned in John 15, he turned to him and said, I'm no longer going to call you servants, I'm going to call you friends. Because servants don't know what his master is doing, but you do know what I'm doing. I'm going to the cross for you. That's a friend. And Jesus tells you, you're not his enemy anymore, you're his friend. Why would God lay down his life, sacrifice it for his enemies? That doesn't make sense. But according to the word of God, it is absolutely true. Even as Christians, when we go astray, when we start wandering further and further from this relationship with Jesus, he is calling us. He's trying to win our hearts again. He will allow even bad circumstances to get your attention. You know, Zach over here is when he when he's trying to talk to Rusty at times, Rusty's just, man, he's just so preoccupied with other things. And so Zach has to say, look at me. Okay? Look at me. Me. Right here. Look at me. And that's what Jesus is trying to do to some of us. And through our circumstances, hard as they may be, sometimes he uses them to get your attention. And he's saying, look at me. I want your attention. Listen to what I'm about to tell you right now. You don't feel loved right now. You feel rejected. That is a lie. In that passage, John 44, I had you write, write down. G Satan is not only called a murderer, he's called a liar. And that lying is his native tongue. Every word that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Every word Satan whispers in your ear 
is a lie. And it runs contrary to the word of God. And yet for many of us, our starting point is those lies. And it's not the truth of God's word. And he is wanting to say to us this morning, stop listening to these lies. You're starting in the wrong place. And if you start in the wrong place, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And you're going to conclude, God must not love me. God must have abandoned me. I really must have sinned so bad now that he's kicked me to the curb. And God says, that is false. If I was willing to die for you and you were my enemy, now that you're my friend, what length? Do you not think that I will go to to win your heart again? And you will never be able to go beyond my reach. I love you that much. And yet we feel lonely as Christians. We feel like our sin is just unforgivable. And we feel beyond the reach of God. For one reason only. We started in the wrong place. We've not started with the truth of God's word. We've started with the lies the devil's been whispering in our ear. Here's another. And I was shocked and in a way ashamed when a young man told me that in his discipleship relationship with a pastor who was pastoring a, a small group of men, there was a young man in the, in the group there and he, he said that he was hurt. Um, some things had happened, and he didn't feel like people trusted him. He had given up drugs five years ago, and the pastor responded to him and said, well, you just need to understand that when people first come to Christ, that even though... He, well, he started off by saying, once an addict, always an addict. Once you believe in Jesus, he can change you some, but generally you remain the same. And I said, surely he didn't say that. And he said, Pastor Mike, I wish I was so wrong. That, that young man started crying right there. And I, I heard the pastor say that. Now, was there a misunderstanding at this point? That aside... That is a lie that the enemy can whisper in our ear. You're never going to change. You were an addict. No wonder you have so many struggles in life because you're still an addict today. Are you going to believe the lie of the enemy that even sometimes, church, we can speak? Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. And and and. He was speaking to Satan, but he, he was pointing, he was looking right at Peter because of what Peter had just said. Sometimes the devil even speaks through us. Is that not a scary thought? But wow, we must speak truth. And, and if the devil, even through a well-meaning Christian, speaks a lie into your heart, and if you believe that lie, you're starting in the wrong place and you need to start with the word of God. What does the word say? The word says about creation, it's only about 6,000 years old, give or take. It's a recent creation, but according to science and what man has to say with all of their assumptions, no, we're probably looking at the earth being 4.5 billion and this cosmo, the universe, about 17 billion. They're starting in the wrong place. Can I just share this with you? God can change the addict 
And, and, and we constantly think, well, by addictions, he means drugs and alcohol. You know, okay, well, I've never done that. When I gave my heart to Christ at 14, I'd never done drugs before. I'd never gotten drunk in alcohol. Actually, I hated to the taste of alcohol, still do to this day. I just don't like it. But you know what? There have been addictions in my life regardless. Because sin, when you're drawn to sin over and over, that, my friend, is an addiction. That's an addiction. It comes in many forms. And the power of the cross can still break that addiction too. That is the power of the cross. That is our starting point, church. This is what scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. For those of you who are in Christ, you have become a new creation. That is a truth. He doesn't say you might arrive at becoming a new creation. If you try hard enough, you'll become a new creation. No, those of you who are in Christ because you believed in him, there is no exceptions here. You're a new creation. The old is past. The new has come. When you look at Romans 6, and he's talking about baptism, and he wants to get into this idea of, of the significance of water baptism. He says, when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death. The old you, the old you, Mary Smith, was crucified with Christ on the cross, and you are a new creature in Christ because of that. Meredith Curtis, when you were 16 years of age, and you were in an accident that cost your best friend's life, and nearly yours, and Christ brought you to that place of utter brokenness and recognition that you were a lost sinner, God changed you, and he found you in Christ. And you became a new creation. The old was past. The new has come. That doesn't mean you're never going to get snagged by those addictions again. But you have now been raised by the resurrection power of Jesus. And that power daily is available to you to walk in this new life. What a shame when we preempt ourselves of that power. When we walk away and we say, no, I'm not going to submit to Christ. I don't like that command. God didn't give us that as an option. Follow me unless you have a better idea. No, it's follow me. Follow me to the end of your days. Church, that needs to be our commitment. I will submit to him. I will follow after him no matter what. Is that what beats in your heart? Because if we're going to follow him and be submitted to him, this is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I, Mike Curtis, no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. He is the hope of glory. His resurrection power is now your power, and he empowers you to live this life, a changed life. Once an addict, you come to Christ, and he will break that. That is the place where we start. The truth of God's word. I'm not going to listen to my circumstances in life and I had a bad day and apparently God did. I'm not going to start there. Because if I feel like I've had a bad day and I'm feeling this, the, I feel like I've been listening to these lies, I'm going to go back to the word and I'm going to immerse myself in the truth of God's word that God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. Jesus was given for you. His life was snatched from him so that it could be given for you. 
Now, God raised his son up from the dead. Praise God. And that same resurrection power lives in you. But God so loved you that he gave. That is where I choose to start. I'm not going to listen to men. I'm not going to listen to lies. I'm not going to look at my circumstances and base decisions on my circumstances. I'm going to listen to God's truth. Are you with me, church? Can we do this? Can every time that we are faced with an obstacle and faced with a lie that we go back to the truth? That's where we start. And if you don't start there, you're going to end up in the wrong place. But here's my promise to you, church. If you start in the right place, the right place, you're going to end up in the right place. And he's going to lead you from victory to victory in what Paul calls the triumphal procession of Christ. That is ours. That is our inheritance when we start with the truth. Can you stand with me? I realize that we got into some kind of deep theological questions here and sorting through some more things about the age of the earth, but the implications, church, where you start, that has far-reaching application. And it will determine how you will live this life.